So I've shared this story before, but it's one of those that I really think is worth sharing again. Um, first, I just think it's a very funny story, but more importantly, it's relevant to what we're talking about this morning. So probably a little over five years ago, I was camping, and for those of you who know the story, you already kind of know where this is going, um, with my two brothers-in-law up in the Adirondacks. Uh, it was a great trip. Canoed our way to the campsite, weather was perfect, views were incredible. I brought some steaks that we cooked over the fire, they were delicious. But as the sun started going down, we were tired, so we figured, you know, it's time to go to bed, long day. And that's when the joy of this trip very quickly started fading away. Like I said, I've told this story before, so many of you know exactly what I'm going to share. We were all in our tents, and little by little we started hearing noises. At first, you know, rustling of leaves, probably some rodents running around throughout the campsite, no big deal. But then we heard this enormous splash. And, and something jumped into the water, and I'm like, what, what jumped into the water? Like, that's, okay, all right. After that, we heard what sounded like a dog lapping water from a bowl, but not like, you know, not like a little dog, like, like the dog from Beethoven, you know, like a big <laughs> dog. Um, now, at this point, I'm terrified. I pull out my knife, which is like, and I spend the rest of the night staring at the crack in the top of the tent, just waiting for the morning to come. Now, there's more to that story, and if you ever see my brothers, um, you can ask them about it. I'm sure they have wonderful things to say about me. Um, at the first sign of light, I remember I ripped open the tent with one of the most intense feelings of relief I had ever experienced. Right, Like, we made it. We weren't going to die that night. Now, here's my point. I have no idea what was going on outside of my tent that night. Very well could have been a bear. I guarantee you it was a bear. <laughs> but it also could have been a beaver, because when we went back to, like, the little place where, like, the rangers are, they're like, oh, it was probably a beaver. I'm like, yeah, well, you weren't there. Um, <laughs> but what made that night that event so terrifying was that everything that was taking place was happening under the cover of night, right? Whether we're six years old, 25 years old, 50 years old, or whatever years old, most of us, if we're honest, if we're outside, if maybe we're driving through what we might consider a bad neighborhood, if we're in the woods, we are all a little bit more aware of our surroundings after the sun goes down. Why? Well, because we know that there's something different about the world when the sun's not shining down upon it. We know that bad things happen at night more often than during the day. At least it feels that way. Now, John uses this light, darkness, day, evening idea throughout the course of his gospel. We see it right in the very beginning when Jesus is spoken of as the light of men that shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And we see it also when the Jewish leader, Nicodemus, comes to visit Jesus. He does it when? At night. Why? He doesn't want to be seen by the other Jewish leaders. The point is that darkness or night typically carries a negative moral or spiritual element that John wants us to pay attention to. A moral or spiritual element that the light of the world is now shining upon. This morning... We're going to see where John's use of darkness and night have been taking us. 
And while our passage is marked by utter and deep tragedy, I mean, this is a rough passage. This is a hard word that we're going to work through this morning. There is a beauty and grace that John significantly wants us to pay attention to as we work our way through this text. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 13. We're going to be working through verses 18 through 30. You can follow along in your bulletin. You can also follow along on the screen behind me. Now last week, just to give a little bit of a recap, we were reminded of Jesus's humility and his grace as he took upon himself the identity of a slave by washing his disciples' feet. And not only did he wash his disciples' feet, but he washed the feet of the one who was about to betray him, Judas Iscariot. It's a scene that forces us to reimagine what glory looks like in the economy of God and how we are called to relate to those around us, neighbor and enemy alike. The passage then ended with a blessing, if you remember, where Jesus argues that if we're looking to experience true human flourishing, to be truly happy, then we must pattern and model everything we do after the structure of God's good creation, a structure that produces fruit in and through us when we give of ourselves for the sake of others, sacrificially and humbly loving God, neighbor, and even our enemies. This week, we'll see Jesus postured in a similar way, while at the same time never relinquishing his God-given authority. As humble, meek, and gracious as Christ is, we must always remember that no one takes the life of Jesus, but rather he lays it down of his own accord. That's massively important as we work through these passages, as we work through any passage involving the person and work of Jesus. He's always in complete control. He's always in complete control. How he uses that control, how he uses that authority is an entirely different conversation, but he never lays it down, okay? That's important. So let's take a look at the text. Verse 18 says this. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, first thing to notice is that Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. And and the question we need to ask is, speaking about what? Well, he seems to be referring to the servant-master dynamic of verse 16 and the blessing of verse 17. In other words, those things, they don't apply to everybody in the room, right? Right? But what's important to understand is that just because one of the 12 are set to betray him, it doesn't mean that Jesus dropped the ball when choosing them. Right? Did you catch what I just said? Just because one of the 12 are set to betray him, it doesn't mean that Jesus dropped the ball when he was choosing them. Right? Look at what it says. I know whom I hath chosen. Man, that's such a key verse to wrap our minds around. This statement is dripping with confidence. And the disciples, man, they needed to hear that confidence in the words of their master. And likewise, we need to hear the confidence in the words of our master. Why? Because Judas' betrayal, 
The fact that it will be one of the primary factors that leads to the crucifixion and that will ultimately lead to the pain that every single person in that room will experience. They need to know that Judas wasn't some massive oversight. You catch that? Judas was not some massive oversight. They needed to know that the one they're following wasn't asleep at the wheel when he decided to bring Judas into the fold. Now, here's the point. The evil and brokenness of this world does not negate the authority of Christ. Okay? The evil and brokenness of this world does not negate the authority of Christ. And that reality, that alone right there, we can walk away and, and, and have a very thorough, thoroughly just cleansed soul and mind and encouraged spirit with that reality because it gives us confidence as we walk through the suffering, pain, and even betrayals that we will experience in this life. The evil and brokenness of this world does not negate the authority of King Jesus. That's so important. I know whom I have chosen. I know whom I have chosen. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar and Bible commentator, he says it like this, and I have a slide. The reason why Jesus takes pains to show that the inclusion of Judas was not an oversight or a sign of weakness on his part is so that their faith might be strengthened for this critical hour. Which hour? The hour of Jesus' crucifixion and all the subsequent cross-bearing hours that they will walk through and that we're called to walk through. Why? So that the world might know Christ. This is unbelievable. This is incredible. Jesus' authority is such that we can walk confidently even in the midst of the pain, even in the midst of the suffering, even in the midst of the chaos. Jesus has not lost control of the situation. Are you tracking with that? I know whom I have chosen. I know whom I have chosen. Oh, that's so good. That's so good, and it's so vitally important, especially for us as we walk through so many valleys of the shadow of death, right? So many, day after day, we're walking through valleys. We're going through some sort of struggle, some sort of trial, some sort of, of pain, some sort of broken relationship, some sort of betrayal. And what Jesus wants us to understand as we work our way through this text, he has not dropped the ball. He knows whom he has chosen. He is on it. He still is seated on the throne, okay? Even in that room, kneeling down on his feet, on his knees, washing the disciples' feet, He's still seated on the throne. That's good news. That's good news. That's what it means that we have a king, right? So that's what's going on in the room. Now, Jesus makes this very clear in verses 19 through 20. Let's take a look. It says this. I am telling you this now before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he, truly, truly. I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. 
So again, there's a reason why Jesus is telling them this. And as we'll see in just a few minutes, why he's letting them see all of it. So that when it takes place, they might believe that I am he. Now this is one of those I am statements that John's gospel is famous famous for. One of those statements that's supposed to draw our attention all the way back to when Moses meets God at the burning bush and he's like, hey, God, what, what should I tell, you know, Pharaoh? And, and he responds, tell him I am he who sent you, right? And so we might even be able to read this. I'm telling you this so that you know that I am Yahweh. You track that, right? That's what those I am statements in John are all about. It's Jesus communicating, again, his authority, right? So he is saying, I am Yahweh. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God who brought your people out of Israel. I am the God who spoke creation into existence. I am the God who, when you go into your Old Testament, whenever it says L-O-R-D in all capital letters, that's me, right? And so everything that's been going on from the beginning of chapter 13 is highlighting who Jesus is. He's setting up, he's articulating, he's communicating, he's demonstrating his identity. And if we set it up logically, like a, like a logical syllogism, and, and you logic people can tell me if I'm doing this wrong um, with a three-premise syllogism, but we'll see, right? One, Jesus takes the form of a slave when he washes his disciples' feet. And two, Jesus even washes his enemies' feet. And three, Jesus identifies himself as Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the maker of heaven and earth, is the sort of God who willingly and humbly makes himself nothing so that the ones he loves, both those who receive him and those who reject him, might know and experience that love tangibly. You track that? Did you catch what I just said? Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, is the sort of God who willingly and humbly makes himself nothing so that the ones he loves, both those who receive him and those who reject him, might know and experience that love tangibly. In the next chapter, Jesus will say the words, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so if we're wondering who God is or what he's like, Well, we need to look at Jesus. What does he do? How does he function? And then we see the Father. I love this passage because in all of its tragedy, we are seeing on full display the character and identity of Yahweh himself. Oh, that's good. That's such good news. And it's such a beautiful thing to just kind of see rise out of the text. It's like, oh my gosh, like, God, you are, that's amazing. Man, your love is so overwhelming. Right? That's the God we serve. All right? You tracking with that? That's the God we serve. What's the point? Well, one, Jesus doesn't want them to be surprised when Judas turns out to be a traitor and when they see him hanging on the cross. That's what's going on here. He's like, you need to know who I am and how I function. So you're not shocked and confused and surprised when Judas turns out to be a traitor and when you see me hanging on the cross. 
See, Judas's betrayal, it's not a surprise to Jesus. In fact, it seemed like it might have been part of the plan all along. And Jesus' crucifixion, while it runs contrary to everything the disciples were expecting, it's actually the ultimate unveiling of who God is. The glory of God is revealed in the lifting up of Jesus on the cross. Because he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And, and, here, and here's where it gets good. Verse 20. Well, I'll read again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So, so Jesus is going to send people. And if people receive the ones who are being sent by Jesus, they're receiving Jesus. And in turn, then they are receiving the Father. All right? Now, D.A. Carson says it like this. Again, I'm leaning heavily on him because his commentary is phenomenal. And I got a, a slide for this. This verse, verse 20, powerfully ties the disciples to Jesus and therefore serves as a foil for the failure of Judas Iscariot. The mission of Jesus is here assigned the highest theological significance, the most absolutely binding authority, the authority of God himself. And because his disciples, including us, represent him to the world, our mission, our ministry, now takes on the same absolute significance. Did you hear that? In other words, our cross-bearing work in loving God, neighbor, and enemy in both word and deed, it carries the same significance as the ministry of Jesus to the extent that our ministry does indeed stand on and reflect the authority of the scriptures. So, so, so don't hear what I'm not saying. It doesn't mean if you're a Christian, you could do whatever you want, and, and you are now, you know, it's just as good as Jesus, right? That's not what it's saying. It's saying that our cross-bearing work in loving God, neighbor, and enemy in both word and deed, it carries the same significance as the ministry of Jesus to the extent that our ministry does indeed stand on and reflect the authority of the scriptures, which is the authority of the apostles who passed down this good news through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that the world might know Christ. Meaning, when we are doing this thing faithfully, we are walking in the authority of Christ, an authority that looks like washing feet and dying, right? That's what is being communicated to us. That is heavy, to quote Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future, right? That is heavy. But it's good. It's so good, right? Because, again, now it gives us more confidence. It gives us more confidence to live out this faith, to love God, neighbor, and enemy, to, to submit ourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ, to practice things like humility, meekness, to allow ourselves to be persecuted for the faith, to allow love to trump vengeance, to allow mercy to, to trump whatever you know, negative thing might go on the opposite of mercy, right? I, I'm, I'm running out of words. But the point is, is that when we posture ourselves the way Jesus postured himself to the world, we're carrying the authority of the king with us. When we are loving God, neighbor, and enemy as ourselves, we're carrying the authority of Jesus with us. That's, that's pretty cool. That's pretty wild, right? 
And when we're proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, calling people to repentance, we're carrying the authority of Jesus with us. But the message and the life, they have to match up, right? They have to match up. Jesus spoke the truth while he was on his knees washing feet, okay? So therefore, remember, washing feet was an example, a pattern, a blueprint, a key and time signature that we can all play along with, and that it looks different in varying situations. So we have to make sure that we're taking that example and we're applying it to wherever we're at. And when we're doing that and we're proclaiming Christ, we are carrying with us the authority of Jesus. That's what that passage is getting at. Man, that's good. That's wild, right? That's pretty, it's pretty cool. It's pretty significant. And again, it gives us confidence, but it also gives us a little bit of a weight to, to kind of remind us what it is that we're actually doing, who we're representing, who we're representing, right? And that doesn't mean that we just need to make sure, right, to, 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 you know, to be trite and cliche, like that we just, you know, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Like, okay, but it's also like, maybe that's part of it, but but it's also this idea that what we do, we do in humility. What we do, we do in love. What we do, we do in compassion and service and meekness. And, and just read the Sermon on the Mount, right? Just read the Sermon on the Mount. It's how we engage with one another. It's how we engage with one another. And then it's what we speak. Oh, it's so important that we wrap our minds around both those truths. Word and deed ministry has to be what marks us. Now, again, as we keep reading, we're going to be reminded of Jesus' humanity. Now, in reading through this next section, I was, I was reminded of my role as a dad. Because um, there are times in the life of a parent where you need to convince your kid that everything is okay, even when you might be scared out of your mind. Right? You ever experienced this? where you need to just convince, like, ah, everything's good, everything's good. And meanwhile, like, your, your knees are buckling together. Ah, everything's cool, we're good. Every, ah, don't worry about it, we're going to be good, right? I don't think that's entirely what's going on here, but that's just what was bouncing around in my brain. Because check it out what it says here, verses 21 and following. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, if you remember, Jesus was just speaking with such confidence, right? I know whom I have chosen. But now, he's troubled in his spirit. The language is pretty strong here. Jesus is horrified and probably visibly agitated by what he's about to say. Now, imagine being in the room. You're now looking around at everybody, wondering, who could it be? Your mind starts racing, sorting through memories. It could be Peter. I remember that day when he, you know, fill in the blank. Oh, but Philip. But Philip. We were talking. I remember that conversation two years ago. And he said, or then you're like, oh, wait, did, is it me? Did I do something? I mean, I was talking to that one Pharisee that day. Did I slip up? Did I, oh, no. Like, now, if you're Judas, though. Sweat's probably starting to build up on your forehead. You're terrified. Maybe you even consider coming clean. This could be your chance to make it right. This could be it right here. You have the opportunity. Now push pause. While this is all happening, the disciple whom Jesus loves 
was reclining at Jesus' side, probably to his right. This is most likely John, and he's sitting in a place of honor. Now, some scholars argue that Judas is sitting on Jesus' other side, which would have also been a place of honor. Now, we can't be sure, but it's a strong possibility. Now, while they're all wondering what's going on, Peter decides to be proactive. Look at verse 24 and 25. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus, motioned to the, the disciple that was reclining at table close to Jesus. He motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back, back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, what stands out here is how the text is painting the picture of everything going on in the room. John is laying right on Jesus' chest. Like that's how close they are at this point. Peter's probably sitting across from them, and there's this motioning back and forth. Like I picture it like two students talking to each other from across the classroom, thinking that their teacher doesn't know what's going on. And John asks him, Lord, who is it? Verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now, this is wild. This is, this is really cool. Because what Jesus does in giving this dipped morsel of bread to Judas is a practice that was understood as a mark of honor or friendship. That's what he's doing here. Jesus loved Judas. Period. Full stop. I cannot stress that enough. He's seated in a place of honor, most likely. He is demonstrating this, 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 this loving moment with him by giving him this dipped morsel of bread. I mean, why do you think he's so troubled in spirit? Why do you think he's, he's horrified and terrified and overwhelmed at what is about to take place? This is his friend. This is someone he's walked with for three years. Jesus is fully God, but he is fully human. And in feeding him this morsel of bread, Jesus is offering, in the words of D.A. Carson, a final gesture of supreme love. A final gesture of supreme love. The text says that after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. In a moment that could have set Judas free. A moment where the kindness and love of God could have paved the way for him to repent. It instead hardened his resolve. Judas was now fully possessed by evil. This is hard. This is hard to read through. This is hard to work through. This was a hard passage to study this week. I'm reminded of how the serpent deceived Eve in Genesis 3. He had her believing that the God who loved her, the God who gave her an entire garden, an entire creation to enjoy, was no longer for her but against her. That's what the serpent had Eve believing. Judas, who just felt the hands of his Lord cleaning his feet, 
who had memories of healings and miracles, who could probably tell you exactly where he was when Jesus called him to be one of his disciples. He no longer believed that the love that Jesus had for him was real. I mean, maybe, maybe some in this room are working through a season where you're finding it hard to believe that God is for you, that he still has your back. I mean, if scripture is true, and I believe it is, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the scripture tells us that God is with us. Now, I know there's no magic bullet or word to change your mind in a moment that God is, in fact, for you. But the truth of scripture, the truth of the gospel is that no matter how dark it gets, Jesus is, in fact, the light of the world. And the darkness cannot overcome the light. I know it feels that way. But the truth is that Jesus is the light of the world. Now, some scholars believe that Judas was a zealot which means that he would have wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire by force. And that's why he chose to betray Jesus, because that didn't seem like the plan that Jesus was going with. Maybe that's true. It could be that Judas was just greedy. We know he used to steal money from the money bag. We learned that in chapter 12, verse 6. So an extra 30 pieces of silver would have been a compelling temptation. Whatever the reason for his betrayal, There's two things I believe we need to walk away from this considering. First, the deceitfulness of sin is powerful. So much so that it has the ability to influence even those who have walked side by side with God himself. We see this in the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve walked side by side with God in the cool of the day. And we see it in the life of Judas. Therefore, we have to take sin seriously. We cannot play around whatever the temptation might be. And we know this from experience. That when we open just a little bit, like just a little bit, like just a crack, and the water starts to drip in, that ultimately that crack gets bigger and bigger and bigger and floodwaters start to come through. We know that from experience. And this passage shows us we got to take it seriously. It could happen like that. The second thing is that God's heart is wrecked at the knowledge of his image bearers wandering away from him because he loves us so much. And that sort of love, that sort of love that we see on full display here in chapter 13 of John's gospel, that's the sort of love that must shape the way we engage those around us who have wandered away from God, whatever their sin of choice is. See, there's a comfort in this passage. Oh, but there's also a challenge for us. We need to see the example of Jesus. And we need to, remember, 
take the pattern, take the model, take the blueprint, take the key and time signature and apply it to whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. That's so important for us to wrestle with. His heart is wrecked. And it's from that broken heart that Jesus speaks the words, what you are going to do, do quickly. In other words, just get it over with, Judas. Just get it over with. Jesus doesn't want this thing to drag on any longer than it has to. Now, part of me wonders if there's an element of grace and compassion in these words. Could it be that Jesus wants this to do, Judas to do this quickly for his own sake, so that Judas could be put out of his ministry, the way his misery, the way we put an animal down to prevent them from suffering. I read that theory somewhere, and it, it seems to fit with the love that has marked this section, but, but maybe not. Whatever it is, one thing is sure. God can offer all the love in the world. He did do that. He sent his only son in the flesh to walk the earth, to live among the poor, to die on our behalf. But love that is offered and never received is a love that cannot be experienced and a love that has no effect. Love that is offered but never received is a love that can never be experienced and a love that can have no effect. Jesus has loved his creation completely by dying on the cross for our sins. However, if we do not love him back by entrusting ourselves to him by faith, then we are just like Judas. Look what it says about him. Verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. While Judas might have received the gesture of love, he did not receive its substance. And so immediately he went out, and it was night. And so here we are. We're back in the darkness, the place of fear, the place where evil lurks in the shadows, the place where rodents and beavers sound like bears, where lies start to look like truth. Scriptures begin with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. The very first thing God does to bring order to the chaos of pre-creation is shine a light on it. But then evil got its hands on God's good creation. And a shadow started to cover everything back up. But when the time was right, the one who spoke light into the darkness, he entered his creation as the light of the world. And the light he shined into the darkness was one that was marked by love, humility, compassion, and ultimately by the cross. It's a light that doesn't necessarily fit our categories of what salvation, victory, and glory ought to look like, but it's the only light that can save us. 
It's the only light that can save us. Jesus knew that his sort of light didn't fit the categories of his disciples. They, just like us, didn't understand the upside-down nature of the kingdom. So what does he do? He models the light, and he warns of the darkness by washing their feet and confidently pointing to his betrayal so that when it all goes down, they would believe that he was who he said he was, the great I am. And the great I am, he dies for those he loves. That's what's being communicated in this passage. This morning, I'm pleading with you. If you have not embraced this light, the light of the cross, the light of a kingdom marked by humility, grace, compassion, where neighbors and enemies are loved completely. I urge you to not walk in the way of Judas, who received the gesture but denied its substance. Trust in Christ. Trust in the saving work of the cross and the sin and death-crushing power of the resurrection, and you will have life. That is good, good news, Redeemer Fellowship. That's what is being put on full display as we observe what's going on in that upper room at the Last Supper. Do we believe that that's the sort of kingdom that Jesus is king over? If so, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, Lord God, I thank you so much for, for your son. I thank you for the reality that your son Jesus pours out his love on his enemies because while we were at enmity with you, Lord, while we were still sinners, your son Jesus died for us. Lord, that's what grace is. That's what compassion is. That's what love is. Father, so thank you for that. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you that we can have life because of what your son Jesus accomplished for us. Not just on the cross, but in the entirety of his ministry, Lord God. And his resurrection and his ascension, and his rule and reign. God, help us to embrace that, Lord. Father, those of us who have wandered from this truth, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that we repent and come back. Father, for those of us in this room who have never embraced this reality, I pray that today is the day of salvation, Lord God. Lord, there is no sin that can separate us from the love of Christ, Lord. There's nothing in our past on our past that can prevent us from coming to you. You will pour out your love on us no matter what we've done. Help us to receive it. Give us the grace to receive it. God, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.